Hello, everybody. <laughs> hey, welcome to the pre-accident investigation safety podcast. Is that what this is called? I don't. What's this called? We've done like 400 of these or something crazy. You'd think I'd remember. Welcome to the pre-A pod, baby. That's what you're at. Um, today's going to be a great day because every day is a pretty good day, and it's uh, you know pretty close to my birthday, so that kind of makes it a perfect day. In fact, I think this is even going to play on my birthday, which is even more exciting. Yes. Um, I like getting older. I don't know if you guys have thought about this very much, but it, it freaks you out for – I mean, there's a whole bunch of freak out points in this, like, you know, crap stops working and – and you you know you look in the mirror and you're like who's that and that I mean the, those things and then there's the big you know the big birthdays which are emotionally charged um, those are often kind of um, hard to handle a little bit if you know what I mean but for the most part I, I would give you this report I like getting older for a couple of reasons one is um, I, I honestly think it gets more fun. And, and I mean, it is life and living life and hanging out with people gets more fun. And I think part of it is because of number two, you just don't give as much craps. Like I have a lot of craps, but I have fewer craps to give now than I did 10 years ago and way fewer than I did 20 years ago. I mean, and it's really weird that there's a whole period of time when you're young and, and things are pure and you care so much and you realize now that you, I don't know. It's not that I don't care very much. I just don't really give a crap. Like if, if somebody says, yeah, that guy didn't like you, I think, well, that's good because <laughs> that's one less guy I got to talk to. I'm glad he doesn't like me. I, I don't. There was a time that would have bothered me, I think. But now, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with it. I think that's a function of maturity maybe or just um, just you have fewer craps to spread around. So you save your craps that you're going to give two things that are more important. I, I don't know, but I kind of like it, you guys. And and I think it's a it's a it's a bold journey. Now stuff quits working, you know, and weird stuff hurts if you sit wrong, you're like, "Oh, what's my hip? Oh, you know, my knee. Oh, my elbow. Oh, my back, right? You got a lot of those pain things going on. That's that's for sure." And um I pee quite a bit more than I used to. Uh in fact, I I try to never miss a chance to uh to pee if you know if given the chance i'll take it just in case but other than that you know things are pretty it's pretty you know stuff still functions and it's working and i'm having a good time and you know trying to be as wild as i can be because i do believe as robert frost reminded us this is becoming kind of a literary podcast i don't know if you've noticed this do not go boldly into that good night i mean you know fight the good fight and stay as young as you possibly can. But part of that, I think, has to do with not giving a crap. And that's kind of right where my premise starts. And that is, in fact, very muy importante for the podcast and what I'm thinking about. But it's my birthday, so maybe maybe I am a bit melancholy. No, I don't think it's melancholy. I think it's it's more interesting than anything. There's a big one coming up that's going to freak me out, but I'm not there yet. So, you know, I'm right in the middle of it. So it's... Uh, it's pretty easy to say. You can be late the last decade or really early the next decade, but I'm kind of right in the middle, so that's how it works. So today's podcast, um, so we're going to talk with Ivan Popoliti because uh, Ivan had a bunch of stuff to say. He's been really busy 
um, doing his learning stuff with the Forest Service. And God, unfortunately, there's been these horrible fires in the United States in Northern California. And so Ivan and I got together actually a little before these fires broke out, broke out. We got together last weekend and put this podcast together. And it's just kind of a discussion on kind of where Ivan's thinking is right now around learning and complexity and how that all works together. There is an incredibly strong idea in this podcast. I'm not going to talk about it now because that'll give you a reason to listen. But uh, there's a bunch going on here. And one really incredibly strong analogy he draws with another organization that has to forecast the future, not safety, but another organization that I think you'll find really meaningful and, and, a, and a part of what we want to think about. Certainly as we think about the black line and blue line, work is done as uh, versus work is imagined. So without much uh, more um, crap about birthdays and aging and peeing and stuff, let's jump into the podcast and see what happens. Here, my friends, uh, is – well, thanks for listening, by the way. If you're new to the podcast, I think a bunch of you are new because um, our numbers are getting big. Um, welcome. You're always welcome to listen. Join in, comment, have questions, be on the podcast. We're building a community of thought where we support one another with these conversations. That's what it's all about. So now, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Ivan Pupoliti, Pup, and uh, his comments on today's Pre-Action podcast. I think I gave him some example and said, okay, put that in a frame, like, a, and the worker identifies a problem and adapts to it immediately. Okay, frame that, you know. Yeah, and, that's and, almost exactly what I said to yeah, him. Thanks. So I said, we tried to apply frame, but because the system is so dynamic and because we're in the space that we're in, yeah. that, that innovation, sense-making, learning, and improvisation is what workers do right. when they reach situations or when they face circumstances that are um, outside the, the predicted modalities. And I said, in, in wildland firefighting, we're a unique laboratory because almost everything is a, is a unique, unique modality. And the workers come to work to, you know, be successful at work. Absolutely. So wildland firefighters come to fires to put fires out. Yeah. And, and now we're actually beginning to challenge that model too, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So as we start to understand the science of fire ecology, yeah. So as we start to understand the modalities that fire, wildland firefighters face, they're, they're looking at a system that's fundamentally complex it delivers the unexpected as a routine, and if you react in routine, you actually increase vulnerability. Right. So if you're in a position where the unexpected is routine, God, that's interesting, um, then what do you manage? Exactly. Maybe you don't manage anything. Maybe instead what you strive to do is understand. Because if you begin to understand the system, then you can start to develop innovations that fit the scenarios that you're facing. So what's that look like? Give me more on what that looks like. Well, I, I can say honestly that you know, we face the same kinds of challenges in aviation, right? So in aviation, we're looking at the same kinds of things. We're not always faced with the situations that appear to be what they are. So when we start to think about situations that are, let's not even think of them as anomalies. Let's think of them as unique situations or situations that um, that go beyond our, our, our ability to predict or our current ability to predict. So aviation has made big strides in this direction, and they've tried to predict things, and they've done a pretty good job because they've increased the, the amount of data, kind of like weather. If you look at weather in the 60s, we were taking a wild-ass guess <laughs> at weather, right? But now we have all of these things. Like, look at the hurricane models. We've got the, the, the spaghetti string models, but they all pretty much say the same kinds of things. The reason for that is because we've developed a lot more data around that, and we're able to predict a lot more things. But as we start to look at 
at some of these other anomalies or not anomalies, but, but unique circumstances in, in systems, we haven't developed that data. And because we haven't developed the data, we, have, we don't have the capability of prediction. So without that capability to predict, we cannot create a model that, that suffices to fit every situation. And the application of rote, the rote application of a model in situations like that can actually make us more vulnerable. And what I mean by that is if we follow a routine in a non-routine situation, we could end up in a, in a place where we are at greater risk. And we see this in, in, in wildland firefighting. In particular, if you look at Wildland Fire Lessons Learned Center, take a look at the Saddleback incident. Here we've got a crew that, that ex is exposed to a hazard. It's a hazard tree. It's a burning tree. They are warned that the hazard tree is dangerous because a big, huge chunk of the tree comes out. A large limb comes out and nearly kills one of the firefighters who runs side hill and, and luckily avoids it. But as he runs side hill, he drops his tool and the limb literally lands on top of his tool. And then they kind of regroup and they start fighting fire around this tree. And as they do this, the, the, the leader of the group is on the radio doing the size up talking to the airplane, doing the things that he has to do to let, uh, let the folks in the area know what's going on with this particular fire. And the other two guys start scratching line. And as they start to scratch line, they scratch line away from the hazard, away from the place where this, this limb fell out of the tree. And he says, no, 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 go the other way. And so they start going the other way. And he does this through hand signals. And as they start to go the other way, he finishes his radio communications and he joins in. And as they're scratching line, they're thinking is is quite different. They're thinking about scratching the line becomes a routine, create a line that keeps the fire contained, it keeps the fire as small as possible, which is our routine. I mean, we actually have verbiage around this anchor flank and pinch, keep the fire as small as possible, that lowers the risk. And as they're doing that, unknowingly, they drift underneath the tree again, and another limb comes out of the tree and kills one of the firefighters. So what we see in these circumstances is that the routine response, which is to build line, keep the fire as small as possible, scratch that line, use the, the knowledge, skills, and abilities that you've acquired through years of, of firefighting, use those skills, can actually put you at greater risk. So take that back to the spaghetti strings, to, to hurricane forecasting. Yeah, so as we start to develop more data, we start to believe that that data is going to give us an accurate model of what's going to happen. Risk actually changes, I think, at that moment. So we think about risk in terms of probabilities and severities in, in situations or in, in scenarios or systems that are simple and complicated. And in simple and complicated systems, that really works. It works well. So let's talk about what a simple system is. A simple system is a system that has interconnected and interactive parts, much like a mechanical wristwatch. If a part breaks, the cause and effect relationship is direct. If this happens, then a single answer, a single outcome results from it. Trending works really well here so that you can extend the useful life of a wristwatch by trending the failure modes of the parts and you can replace them on interval instead of on failure, on cycles instead of failures. So you increase reliability and reliability makes a lot of sense in a simple system. 
If we move to a complicated system, the word that we add there is diverse. And so we think here about nested subsystems. We think about defenses in depth. We think about multiple barrier models. And they all really work here because here the cause and effect relationship exists, but it's a little different than it was with simple. In this case, the cause and effect relationship is if I have this cause, I have a multitude of effects, but it's a limited set. It's limited by the, the number of variants built into the system. So literally, the cause and effect relationship is predicated on the engineering dynamics of building redundancies into the system. Or what we could say is the engineering reliability of the system creates a multi multitude of pathways, but it's not an infinite number of pathways. It's, it's a... a number of pathways that's limited by the engineering model. So as we start to look at complex problems or com complex scenarios or systems, we add the word adaptive. And this is really important for us to understand because now all of a sudden we've created or we've recognized that a system has the ability to change on its own. And that ability to change on its own is predicated on what? Well, if it's a human system, it's predicated on its ability to learn. If it's a mechanical, well, forget the mechanical system. If it's a natural system, like a biologic system, it's predicated on its ability to be opportunistic. All the variables that, that exist in the universe are not mappable. Therefore, all of the, all of the possibilities or all of the permutations that can be faced in a complex system cannot be predicted. And this is where we are, is we're, we're trying to apply engineering models, cause and effect models, to a system where cause and effect is very, very different. So in a complex system, for any cause, you can have an infinite number of effects because of the ability of the system to adapt. Got it. So because of that, we've got to kind of think about our accident modeling very differently. We've got some great models for stuff that I call below the line. So the line is, is, is actually drawn between between simple and complicated below the line and above the line complex. And so I say that, in, that most of our accident investigation models are specifically designed to address things below the line. But once we go above the line, we need a completely different modality. And that's what we realized in the Forest Service is that almost all of our work is above the line. Beyond, sort of beyond classic Newtonian. Yeah. Predictability, yeah. Yeah, and I like the I like the metaphor of above the line. It seems yeah. to resonate with my audiences because I, I actually put up a graph that shows, or a table rather, that shows simple and complicated, and then I draw a blue line straight across, and then above that line I've got complex, and in that complex realm, what we what we face is we face a need not to analyze because analyze is reductionist. It is literally to break things into its components component parts and begin to try and understand them based on on their individual characteristics. But what we understand above the line is that it's not the individual characteristics. It's the relationship between those characteristics. It's the relationship between those components. So if we take an, a reductionist or Newtonian perspective on that, the cost to us is that we miss a lot of those, those interactive, multiplicative, uh, things that create the system to be exactly what it is. And it's in that understanding that we begin to get or grasp what's, what is, what is there for prevention. So when we start thinking about that, when we start thinking about prevention, we have to start thinking very differently. In most classic accident investigation models, we think about trending, we think about statistics, we think about developing those models that'll help us to be able to predict the system. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. We should do that to the best of our ability. But what we have to recognize is that there's a limit to that ability.
And when we recognize that limitation, what what emerges in front of us is more of a sense-making effort. So we go back, we think about some of the pillars, the shoulders of the people that we stand on in this and the pillars of this community. We think about Rasmussen, we think about Reason, we think about Holnagel, we think about Decker, we think about David Woods. These folks have offered to us, uh, as much as anything else, a, a new way of asking questions. And we think about Todd and Todd's book about better questions. It's, it puts the canoe in the water and says, what direction do you want to go and how do you want to go there? And what we recognize is that no two streams are alike. And if, even that stream could be different day to day, even though it seems like that stream is a linear model. It's not. It's a natural model. So what we, th- we start to do is we start to think about something that Reason said in his early books. Uh, I think in in human error, he makes a pretty good case for this. He says, to err is human, and we cannot change the human condition, but we can change the conditions under which humans work. Yet we don't have any organizational or accident investigation or learning models that focus specifically on conditions. Well, we didn't up until now. The learning review's focus is literally to look at that. Look at the conditions that supported decisions and actions. And we do this for a very, very specific set of reasons. One is that we have some basic principles that underpin the kinds of things that we're trying to accomplish in the learning review. One of those principles is to do no further harm to the system or the people within the system. So what we'd found in the Forest Service is that our our application of essentially mechanical models to social circumstances and social social accidents was causing sec- was resulting in second victims. And so we started thinking about that. Do we really want second victims? And what does that do for us as a society? What does that do for the culture of the organization? Well, what we found is that people were less apt to tell us stories, were less apt to share their experiences. They were more prone to be insular. They were less trusting of the organization as a whole and ultimately less trusting of leadership. So we we thought there was a better way to do things. And and one of the things that one of the other things that we tried to do is we tried to understand the accident in context. So we started thinking about these principles in a very different way. We wanted our principles to really, really guide us and to also help us to understand how we are in fact the same. So we looked at our occupational safety folks, we looked at our our accident investigators on the aviation side, we looked at our Folks that were were working in the social social schema, trying to understand this, the social aspect of the normal work environment and how there's a social contribution to accidents and incidents, and from that, what emerged were an additional set of an additional set of uh, of um, principles. So as we start to think about this additional set of principles, it sounds something like this. We can say right off the bat that people are well-intended and doing the best that they can with the information that they have. In other words, where we want to err is not on the side of finding fault or blame in the system, but we want to err on the side of our people having done the best that they could with, with the information that they had at hand. So as we started to think about this, the next thing that came out of it was another principle, and that was... The underlying supposition that people work within a realm of influences that shape their decisions and actions. So instead of causality, what we started thinking about was influence. And what influence, the word, the simple change of of language from cause to influence allowed allowed us to start thinking about and talking about things in a very different way. What we 
ended up doing was we ended up creating what we call a network of influences map out of every one of our accidents. And that network of influences map is literally a list of the conditions that supported decisions and actions at the time. But that's not good enough. That's not good enough for us. At the time only takes us to the accident. And what we started to realize is we want to move as quickly away from the accident as we possibly can. And to move away from the accident, we had to understand what were the conditions that, or what are the conditions rather, that exist in normal work that influence decisions and actions. Now, let me go back just a little bit around this concept of influence. Once we recognized that what we really wanted was influences and not causes above the line, below the line, we still want causes, but above the line, we want influences. And the reason for that is because we want to begin to to talk about things that were previously out of reach to us, things that in a cause and effect model require us to quantify. So rather than being mired in that idea of, well, there's this much causality that's attributed to this or this numerical value of fatigue in our system, rather than doing that, what we wanted to do was just recognize that fatigue exists in the system. And And by changing the language from cause to influence, it made things like that much more accessible. And it made it possible for different levels of the organization to be able to talk about something that existed in the system that everybody knew was there, but not get mired down in the idea or in the need to quantify that value. So mapping these influences are key to understanding the contexts of actions and decisions. And that became hugely important to us. The other big difference in the learning review is that we don't we don't think that we are the all-knowing investigators that we once thought we were. So this with this comes a, a really a really wholesome burden, I would say. And that burden is that we've got to share the ability to make sense of these events in the context of normal work, make sense of the events that occurred. And we use focus groups to do that. And the focus groups are composed of peers, leadership, academic specialists. And we use them to vet the influencing factors, thus building an understanding of how things happen in normal work environments. Because we're not going to predict things based on an accident. What we're going to do is we're going to predict things based on normal work. And that's the space we need to move to as quickly as we possibly can. How much pushback do you get from the, the, the classic people? Um, you know, how, how much pushback do you get that it's kind of a, uh, a social sciences approach to understanding? You know, Todd, that's a great question. And, and here's the way we catch it. What we're saying is that the social science piece that we're introducing and we're presenting is another tool. It's not the only tool. So below the line, all the tools that we've developed, and these are really, truly effective tools, they all work below the line. But what we're saying is because almost all of our work in the Forest Service happens above the line, we needed to focus on understanding what's going on above the line and developing some sort of a methodology or process for analyzing above the line. But in industry, they're going to say, well, how do we track that corporately across the enterprise, right? Because the industry is really tied by, not to get us off on on a tangent, but they're really tied by this belief that we pick one method, we use it worldwide, and it gives us the best information possible, which is complete crap, but they're tied by that. Well, I think that they've, they've been lulled into it. And, and if we really look at the methodologies that they have in their accident investigation processes, they're an amalgamation of things that grew over the years. Yeah. And, and so what we're doing is we're saying, okay, well, here's another direction of growth that can be absorbed. It doesn't replace the stuff that we have. It's additive, too. 
the stuff that we have. So it's continue to do the things that we're doing. That's fine. And if you gain value from that, that's great. But add this so that we can begin to understand the social dynamics. Now, ultimately, what we're going to do is we're going, what we've done, actually, I should say, well, not what we're going to do, but what we've done is we've, we've come to a place where we understand that we can have a really great technical report that supports the social. Or we could go into an accident and find out that the accident is fundamentally technical and there's not much of a social component, in which case the technical, the below the line stuff rules and it leads the report. But if we find that the social part is the most important, then our process of looking at, at, at conditions and actions and looking at, at actions and decisions and pl- trying to place them in context becomes the leading part of the report. And what we offer to our leadership is this. So we've made a couple of mistakes along the way. Let's let's be too completely honest. Well, that's how we do it. <laughs> right, right. So so we started out thinking, well, nothing's worth doing that's not worth doing wrong. That's what I said. <laughs> exactly. As long as you're open enough to learn from exactly. it, right? right? And so the first first thing that we did was we brought a network of influences map to our leadership. And when we saw the eyes glaze over and them saying, this is too complex, we don't want to get into this, we recognized we needed to do something different. So what we did was we dropped back to trying trying to categorize the conditions once we found them in normal work. And so what we did is we developed four categories. And the first category is that stuff, those conditions that are outside of our realm of control. They may belong to the regulator. They might even be legislated. Those are beyond our control. We just have to recognize that they're there. The next ones are the conditions that are going to be difficult to change and usually represent a cultural issue within the organization. The third category that we provide is Conditions that would be easy to change and would make a difference right now. And the fourth category is their conditions. They're there. They influence, but the, the influence is negligible. So we, we present it to leadership in that way. And leadership then is able to sort things and yeah. start to deal with things and develop the interventions that they need to, inter- that they need to develop. We also recognize that, in part, that means that leadership has to enjoin in a, in a learning exercise as well about any kind of accident or incident that occurs. Because what they have within their realm of control is the ability to influence those conditions that are influenceable by them. And if you think about what their job is, what is the job of leadership? The job of leadership can probably easily be defined as leadership's responsibility is to create a workplace wherein workers can be successful. Well, if you start to manage these conditions, as Reason said, you're creating that ability for the worker to be successful. But what does success look, look like for the worker? Because there's another product that we create, too, out of the learning review, and that's a field learning product. And what we recognize here is that if the field is more aware of the conditions of influence, those conditions that are influencing them in normal work, that increases, literally increases their awareness about how they can interact better with their system. Do they want to allow the conditions to rule the situation and and literally take their decision-making capability away from them because they're in a reactive mode? Or do they want to do something different? And we're not saying that they have to do one or the other, but what we are doing is we're defining situational awareness in a very different way. Situational awareness now becomes the awareness of how the conditions are manipulating the workers at the point of work. And you can do like an extended conditions review. You can look for other places where those conditions exist, right? Absolutely. Or, or would exist or could exist. Yeah. In fact, that's the whole idea is to move, like I said, as quickly from the accident to the normal work environment as possible. And so that's exactly what you said is where do those conditions exist in your normal work environment? Well, it seems ridiculous that we study accidents to describe normal, <laughs> right? 
which accidents are super rare and normal super common, we ought to study normal in order to understand accidents, right? That's what yeah, you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And so that's the next piece of this. It, we felt that if the learning review was going to work, it had to work equally well for an accident as it did for the analysis or the review or sense-making of a normal work environment. So last year we applied it to some normal work environments. So these are successful outcome environments uh, in wildland fire. And what we found is that our learning was profound and it was profound at a number of different levels. And what we ended up creating out of that were some dialogue points. And the dialogue points now are coming to the, to the, to the uh, fore where they're emerging as the group of firefighters developing their own interventions. So this is kind of like a la John Adams. If we can identify that the system is, is imposing more risk, then workers will react to that risk in a way to build margin. Well, we tried to do the margin thing and we tried to sell margin to the firefighting community. Another mistake, it didn't work. But when we started to tell them about the conditions and simply report the conditions, give them the network of influences map, give them a narrative and ask some pointed questions, what they did on their own was to, to develop that margin. We didn't have to tell them about margin anymore. They developed it on their own. And so they came up with a thing that they call stop, think, talk, act. The stutter, stat, stata tool, S-T-T-A. I know. I was trying to make it star. I know. I was trying to make it star too because we actually introduced star to them. When we first met you, we thought about star because I thought star was super sexy. You know, Yeah. It spells star. It's, it spells star, which is... What else do you want? Right, which is, that ain't right. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is the part of it that I really like. Yeah. But but that didn't resonate. So it, it, it's the stickiness that we have to create. And, and this is where we think that Adams is really right. If we don't really develop that stickiness through, through ideas of our own, but instead we go to the firefighting community, the community of practitioners, and we present the problem to them in a way that they can understand, which is what the learning review field products are designed to do. What, what do the field products look like then? Oh, they're different from, from incident to incident. Some could be a, a video that highlight the conditions. Some could be just a narrative with some, some uh, pointed questions. Um, the idea, though, is to create a situation where basic assumptions are questioned, normally through dialogue. So what we're trying really desperately to do is to initiate that dialogue. And whatever emerges out of that emerges. We don't have control over those things. And, and actually, by not having control, it allows the firefighters or the workers at the point of work to have more control and therefore more ownership and the products belong to them. And there's less responsibility on us to try and deliver something to them that doesn't work. Which is always true anyway. Yeah. I mean, the worker's always going to own the product. I mean, they complete the design. The worker understands the risk. The worker manages the risk. The worker creates the margins. I mean, that this is brilliant, man. Brilliant. We had to have a, a place though for this. So we created... We created the place, and you were part of this. I, I think you probably recall when we brought uh, senior leadership to Los Alamos. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was a great experiment. Um, we called this the safety learning journey. We didn't just visit Los Alamos. We visited the Coast Guard. We visited Con Edison, a major construction company in the central part of the United States. We visited the Coast Guard. Um, and, and then leadership kind of put their heads together. And, and here's what the learning journey did for us. It moved leadership from a place of knowing at that time to a place of inquiry. And that shift created the space for us to start to deliver different types of products to them in terms of accident investigation. And it's kind of like you did with Los Alamos where you, you gave them something different and they asked for something else. They asked for more of that, in fact. Right. 
And so we played on that. The net result of it was that the leader's intent shifted from finding cause, blame, uh, to finding an ability to learn. And so our previous chief, Tom Tidwell, said this. He said, products and information that were the result of the learning review will not be used for administrative, disciplinary, or legal purposes by the Forest Service. But probably more important, Tidwell goes on to say, accountability is redefined. After an event, the entire organization is accountable to learn all that we can from the event. And this this fundamental shift in our focus and our leader's intent gave us space to begin to explore this space. Now, this journey has not been a short journey. You know, you've been alongside working with us from the very beginning. And yeah, our, yeah, yeah. Our, our journey has gone from, well, it's lasted over 10 years, right? 2000, yeah, yeah. you and I started in 2006. Wow. And that's we were so young. <laughs> we were both young and better looking. Yes. <laughs> but but that that says that the learning journey itself is important and it shouldn't be underplayed. And we've got to give our leadership the time and space to come on board with this and not have the expectation that they're going to do it overnight because it's likely that they're not. They're going to wrestle with certain aspects of this. And I can honestly say that certain aspects of the Forest Service leadership are still still wrestling with it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. That's the podcast. So there it is. What do you think? I forgot to tell you in the intro. I should have told you in the intro. There's two things I've got to talk about. One is Ivan had his cute little dog with him, and his dog was a big pain in the bootocks. It, it really was wanting attention from Ivan in every way possible, every shape, form, and ability possible. And so Ivan had to spend quite a bit of time um, – uh, dog snapping, sitting, dog dog caring for. The the analogy that I thought was so cool in this, and I've really thought about it since we did it, is the hurricane prediction analogy, how they use the European model and the NOAA model and the U.S. Weather Service model and the Canadian model, and they put all the, 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 side, the squiggly lines, the sine waves, the squiggly lines on that model, and then they look for sort of a range of potential failure. That, I think, has lots to teach us, a lot, a lot to teach us. That's a pretty good podcast. I'm gonna I'm gonna close out because we're a little long today, but uh, I can't wait to talk to you next week. There's there's tons of great stuff happening. You'll 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 hear it's all coming. It's all coming, baby. So just relax, stay tuned. Tell your friends, subscribe, try to um, get a bunch of people to listen. I think it helps us a lot of ways. Until then, I hope you get what you need. That's important to me. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Learn something new every single day. And for goodness' sakes, be safe. <laughs>